you're getting a baseball rat. You're getting someone who is so passionate about the game, whose love for the game is so deep that it can only be exuded in this joy. I mean, I think you will see the best version of Nolan Arenado that maybe we'll see in his entire career. And that's saying a lot because we've, we've seen some amazing numbers from him over the last couple of years. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball, brought to you by Closets by Design of St. Louis. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould, joined this week by Jenny Kavnar, AT&T Sportsnet, host of the Rockies pre- and post-game. I'm very excited to have you on here because I wanted to get a perspective on, well, I mean, it's certainly one of the biggest trades in Rockies history. It may also be the worst trade in Rockies history, um, but it, it's going to possibly be one of the biggest trades in Cardinals history too. Um, forever finishing second to Lou Brock, as they say around here. And Jenny, I just want how did how did that play out for you this past weekend? As it seemed like the two sides, Cardinals and Rockies, were on the precipice of the Nolan Arenado deal, um, and then it just was a matter of everybody waiting it waiting for it to be completed. Yeah, well, first of all, Derek, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm always excited to talk about Nolan Arenado, of course, because you're talking about one of the greatest players, um, you know, playing the game currently. So it's a disappointment on this side that we aren't going to be able to watch him each and every night like we've had the pleasure to do the last eight seasons. But, um, you know, on a personal note, I'm very happy for Nolan. I'm happy, um, you know, that this is very clear. This was the direction that he personally wanted to go in. Um, and we can mm. get into all of those details, but, um, from day one that I've met Nolan Arenado, the intensity of his desire to win and desire to do it at the highest level possible has driven him to all of his accolades has driven him, um, you know, to, to becoming the best third baseman in the game ha has driven all of his moves and his intentions. And so I think for Nolan, there was a lot of disappointment um, in the Rockies organization when they built up to a place where they went to the playoffs back to back seasons in 2017 and 2018 for the first time in franchise history. Um, and yet, there wasn't a lot of movement going on after mm -hmm. that. I mean, we saw that Jeff Breidich signed one of the the largest contracts of a back into the bullpen ever, and it just didn't work out with Jake McGee, Brian Shaw, and Wade Davis. Um, none of them were on the same page on the same year or had uh, great seasons in a Rockies uniform. And so after that disappointment and you know losing the amount of games they did, finishing fourth in the NL West in 2019, um, when Nolan had just signed a really large contract, the largest deal the Rockies will probably ever make um, in their franchise history to eight years, $260 million. I saw the frustration boil. I mean, he was very open publicly about it, obviously. I don't know all the closed door meetings and all the conversations that happened between him and Jeff Breidich, um, but he would just go as far to say that he felt disrespected by the organization. I always took that as he felt disrespected because I knew Nolan wouldn't sign that long term of a deal if he didn't really believe that this team was heading in the right direction to win. As I mentioned, his desire to win and his desire uh, to do it at the highest level is always in the forefront of how um, he wanted to perceive his career when all is said and done. So uh, I think there was a big drop off of disappointment for him after that season. It obviously became very public in the off season and then boom, the pandemic hits. So we go to spring training last year and Nolan is usually one of the first guys there and um, his energy, uh, you know, bouncing around the clubhouse, he's ready for baseball. He's been dying for it all off season and it's finally there and Nolan wasn't there. And it felt like a big void. It felt like he was really dealing with some things and trying to understand, you know, where this organization was at, where he wanted to be. Um, and obviously they weren't able to make a trade in the off season. They weren't going to do that. And then with the pandemic, it just wasn't the right time for them. And then Nolan clearly underperformed um, in this shortened 60 game season that they just finished in 2020. So, you know, you can take that a lot of ways. Was he distracted? Do you have things on his mind that were affecting his offensive numbers? Um, was it the lack of fans in the stands, the lack of energy? You know, the list goes on and on. Obviously, he had an injury as well in there. Was that of hindrance? But it just felt from a, a reporter's perspective going into this offseason 
that obviously there would be a ton of talk about Nolan getting traded and it was just inevitable of when it was going to happen. Um, the way it happened and the return for him and obviously the money involved, I think are all, you know, very shocking things. But again, with the pandemic involved and mm -hmm. um, the amount of money that the Rockies felt like they needed to shed from their payroll, um, I guess that's where they ended up in that position. I mean, it's, it's, it's a remarkable player. You, it's rare that you see the best player in baseball traded. And yet then the past two off seasons, we could argue we've seen that with Mookie Betts moving sure. from Boston, which is something that you never expect to see that the Boston would lose a face of the franchise. And then right here to Colorado, does, do you think, what role do you think the pandemic and how reliant the Rockies are on ticket sales played into this versus, you know, Arenado's just wished to leave and his pressure on the team to move him. Yeah, I really think, Derek, that it was the perfect storm. I mean, hmm. again, I think Nolan could have said till he was blue in the face publicly that he wanted to be on a winning team. And, and maybe some of that would have changed some of the moves in a non-pandemic type, um, you know, season, or maybe it would have um, created a better conversation between them or, you know, whatever it might have been. But at the end of the day, the reality is money drives this business. And when your owner, when you're an owner of a mid-market team and you lose a huge portion of your income, as we know the Rockies have, they're always top 10 in attendance. People come to Coors Field. You've been to Coors Field many a times. It's one of the most beautiful ballparks in all of Major League Baseball. Fans enjoy coming. They enjoy a good Rocky Mountain sunset and mm -hmm. maybe some Rocky Mountain oysters and a good Rocky Mountain beer to go with it. And they pay for all those things. And none of that money was coming in. Um, at the same time, to my knowledge, the Rockies really didn't do any layoffs. I know a lot of other teams had to resort to that. Um, they wanted to take care of their people internally and, um, you know, still paid all of their employees. So again, I don't know to the extent of that or, you know, how furloughs ended up working out for them, but I do know that was a commitment from the front office. Um, again, not being able to, to see the checkbook or to be able to see mm -hmm. the balance sheet and know where the Momfords are right now. Uh, Dick was very honest. Dick Momford, the owner of the Rockies, was very honest in a letter to season ticket holders this offseason, just saying, like, it's not going to be business as usual. This was a season unlike we've ever had, and we're going to feel the effects of that. Um, now, trading your star player, I don't think that fans wanted to see that. I think that they're very hurt because – they just feel like this was, you know, a quick solution and maybe not um, a long-term solution. And I think the Rockies see that very differently. You know, they they were committed to Nolan. It was very obvious when they um, signed him to an eight-year deal, $260 million, gave him a really high AAV at the time. And also on top of that, gave him an opt-out for free agency after three years, which of course is still in play in his contract as he heads over to St. Louis now. Um they were building the team around him. At the same time, you start to look financially. He wants other guys around him to win. You can't build a team around Nolan Arenado if you don't have good pitching, if right. you don't have good hitting. And the Rockies are coming off one of their worst offensive performances um, in franchise history. And that's saying a lot considering where they play at Coors Field. And they're always, you know, end up in the, in the top 10, top five in a lot of good offensive categories. Pitching has historically been a struggle, but they do have a core of young starters who progressively are now getting more expensive every year as the arbitration years are coming up as free agency approaches for some of them, um, how they're going to be able to keep that core together. If that's who they want to build around Trevor story is going to be a free agent next year. Are you going to be able to keep him? Um, you couldn't keep everyone. And at the end of the day, I think they had to make a decision again, pandemic or not, of who you really are going to build around. And was that going to be this huge contract you promised to Nolan Arenado, who's now, you know, publicly angry and upset with the organization or is yeah. it going to be around another player? And again, you're not guaranteed anything, right, Derek? I mean, they could have this right. whole plan that like they're going to trade Nolan and they're going to free up some money and they're going to sign Trevor's story to a long-term deal. But it's Trevor's right to go to free agency next year. I mean, MLB just rated him the number one shortstop in the game going into the season. Like, wouldn't you want to test free agency? So, um, you know, there's a lot of question marks around this deal. And obviously it's made Rockies fans really frustrated, really upset. And you have to dive a little deeper, too, into the historical context of a really young franchise that just started in 1993. But 
you you trade away. I mean, Cardinals fans really because you trade away Larry Walker. He's <laughs> now a mm-hmm. Um, you trade away Troy Tulowitzki at a really interesting time. Um, the only man that ended up standing in a Rockies uniform for his entire long career was Todd Helton. And you know what? They tried to trade him to the Boston Red Sox at some point. Right. So it's really a model of even when Nolan signed that deal, you had to wonder if it was really going to be able to come to fruition. When, if I were to ask you a year ago, as Nolan is not there at spring training, where would be the place you think would be a good fit for him? Knowing his personality, knowing his skills as a baseball player, but knowing what he also wants from a baseball team, would would the Cardinals have been on the short list? Would I mean we, we obviously heard a lot about the Dodgers, but we also knew that the Cardinals had real aggressive interest last year trying to figure out if they could pull off a deal and just ran into a lot of roadblocks. Would for you, did did you think the Cardinals would would be that fit for him? And where would you have put them? You know, I, I definitely think based on the Cardinal way, if you want to put it in that direction, um, what we all know about the Cardinals, about their organization, about their history, about their desire to win, about the big baseball town that it is, um, I would definitely have put that top on his list. I mean, in terms of, you know, uh, top teams to consider having a no trade clause as he did. However, if I'm answering it honestly, the only other uniform I saw Nolan Arenado in was a Dodger uniform. And Mm. a little bit of that is proximity to where he grew up in Orange County. He grew up loving the Dodgers. He grew up going to Dodger games. Um, That fabric was ingrained in him. His numbers at Dodger Stadium aren't necessarily his best numbers. Um, I know you've probably started to dive into a lot of his splits around the NL Central. He's going to do really well in the NL (laughs) and some of those smaller ballparks. So I I think from a baseball perspective, it it definitely is such an amazing fit for him. I think the Dodger thing was never going to happen on a trade front and call it an ego or call it, um, you know, just just not wanting to give up within your division. There's no way the team that's won the division for almost the last decade now that you're just going to go ahead and hand them your star player as well. Like that just would have been um, would have been really bad for the Rockies to end up in that direction. I saw it more as if Nolan made it to his opt out year in free agency that that would be a team that might heavily pursue him and that he would really have a desire to go to. But again, I think, you know, Nolan's a big believer that God always has a plan. And I think for him, this is the direction that really he was supposed to go. And I know he's going to embrace um, that organization, that culture and those fans, and he'll really appreciate um, those fans a ton. I know when he's been there before and received a standing ovation from Cardinals fans for an amazing baseball play he had, I know he had a lot of respect um, for what happens in St. Louis. I want to ask you about the player that the Cardinals are getting. Um, but first, if you if you give me a moment, I have to tell people about our sponsor too. You know, I have to pay the bills kind of That's usually. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Imagine your home totally organized. Closets by Design specializes in custom closets, pantries, laundry rooms, garages, and more. Now get 40% off plus an additional 15% off. That's Closets by Design, the official sponsor of the best podcast in baseball. Call Closets by Design, 314-733-9855 or 1-800-BYDESIGN. That's 1-800-BY-DESIGN, 1-800-BYDESIGN. Closet by Design of St. Louis, the official sponsor of the best podcast in baseball. So, Jenny, what kind of ball player are the Cardinals getting for the fans who have not paid attention to the best all-around player in the National League for the last eight years? You're getting a baseball rat. You're getting someone who is so passionate about the game, whose love for the game is so deep that it can only be exuded in this joy. I mean, there is video of Nolan hitting off of a tee when he was two years old, and you can almost see his current swing in that swing. And he comes from a family that loves sports, that loves baseball, um, but a very passionate family. You know, his dad is from Cuba. His family defected mm. from Cuba. And so Nolan technically on his dad's side of the family is first generation American. His mom's family has um, Puerto Rican roots and they're very tight knit. Um, and I'm talking about, you know, their their core family, which involves Nolan and two two brothers He's the middle child and um, his parents. And then, of course, their extended family. It's a family that um, is so tight-knit and so passionate. Um, And his upbringing really shows in how he plays baseball. I mean, Nolan 
will not be one to hide his feelings. He definitely wears his emotions on his sleeve. And um, I think what I was so lucky in my career to do is really get to witness him from the minor league levels to making his major league debut in 2013 and this crazy maturation process um, of a guy who really became the best defender. I mean, we've seen that he's, he's won four platinum gold or four platinum gloves in addition to his eight gold gloves. He's gotten one for every single season he's been in major league baseball, but that defense alone, Tarek is something to come to the ballpark for. Um, you, we say this, I feel like on a bi-monthly basis of like, you never know what you're going to see at the park. You never thought Nolan's defense (laughs) would get any better. And all of a sudden, there's this play that is just like, how do you even make that? No one can make that. And yet for you, for the media, for people that get to be there the hours and hours and hours before games, you're going to see it develop. It's amazing how often he works on his craft, how he practices random situations that may or may not ever come up in a game. And really he plays them out in his head. It's almost like he can make those plays because He's been practicing them over and over and over again. And just his innate ability is really, really impressive. But also his power. I mean, when Nolan's at the plate, a Nolan Arenado squared up home run has a different sound. And it is an amazing sound. And the roar of the crowd that goes with it is pretty (laughs) phenomenal. So I guess at the end of the day, and I hope you're getting this from how I'm describing it, is he's such a joy to watch because I feel like in a day and age where we're seeing the crazy contracts for these players and for their skill set. Um, I think if you were to honestly take it all away from Nolan, he would still play the same way. Like his joy for baseball is that deep, you know? And um, it's just, it's really, it was really cool for me again, as, as a TV reporter to get to go to his parents' house and do some stories on um, his upbringing and get to know his family and realize that passion it doesn't just run with Nolan. It runs so deep with his crew and they're just such a tight knit group. So um, I'm really excited for fans in St. Louis to get to see that on display every night. Where, what was he like in the minors? I mean, you got a chance to see him. Can you, can you describe what that was like and, and maybe how you saw the, the early stage? Cause I mean, he wasn't, I mean, he was a top prospect and highly regarded, but I don't think people expected him to zoom into the majors and win you know, eight consecutive gold gloves or have a hundred RBI seasons like this. No, I I don't think that was projected for him at all. I think for him to be, um, you know, a solid defender and provide some power at the plate was definitely there. But like you mentioned, um, to go on the run that he has since 2015 and be the RBI leader in major league baseball. And, you know, I think he's second in home runs in that time and then add on all the gold gloves that really wasn't there in the minor leagues. I think for Nolan, I mentioned the maturation of it. And, you know, Nolan um, basically was diagnosed with ADD at a young age. And you'll be able to see that. I mean, there's there's a jittery part to Nolan that he's a mover, like he wants to be doing all the time. And I think for Nolan, too, the maturation process that I'm talking about had to come in the form of taking criticism, of working on his game, of not just relying on the talent all the time. And I'll never forget Jerry Weinstein, who is in the Rockies organization. Um, he'd been at the major league level, you know, in the, in the last decade, but he also worked really heavily in the minor leagues and um, just a great baseball mind, but, but a great people's person. And I think for him, he really honed in on how to be tough on Nolan. And I'm not sure that up to that point, anyone in his career ever had been, you know, I think he had some great little league and high school coaches um, that really pushed him. But I think Jerry was able to really, really, find a place where he could motivate Nolan and turn that into some self-motivation. Um, hmm. He would pull Nolan from games if he didn't run out of ground ball hard enough, or, um, you know, it, he worked on his footwork, which ultimately became um, why Nolan's such a good defender at third base. So I think you have to point back um, to some of those moments, but um I think the drive for Nolan was always there. It just maybe wasn't tapped into at the level that that he got in the minor leagues that got him to where he is now. And he had some disappointments, I mean, along the way too. I think, you know, he told me a story about um, there were call-ups happening and he felt like it was his time in the 2012 season 
Josh Rutledge, if you remember that name, mm-hmm. um, got called up. I always love to say that because his wife, Laura Rutledge, who's on ESPN, has become so famous. <laughs> so, so Laura Rutledge's husband, Josh Rutledge, got called up in that 2012 season. And to be honest, I think that really peeved Nolan. I think that really got under his skin. He thought he was the next in line. He felt like he was ready. And now he has to watch Josh. And Josh had some success early um, in that call up in 2012. And that was just not a great, great season for the Rockies. It was a very, um, just one of those dismal years that you want to forget in franchise history. But um, for Nolan, he had a conversation with Dan O'Dowd, who was the general manager at the time, about how the plan for him was to still, you know, he's still close, he's still getting there, but there's very specific things he needed to work on. And I think part of that was even his attitude and, and, you know, creating that little extra chip on his shoulder maybe helped him in the whole process. You know, he would have gotten called up in 2012. Who knows if he would have been and become as good as he is now, but having that extra off season, having that extra time to really think and work on his craft, and and want the desire to become one of the best players in the game to prove people wrong, maybe that was the final piece that he needed before his ultimate call-up um, at the end of April in 2013. With that in mind, how do you think he'll uh... – he'll do with the expectations that come with the Cardinals. I don't, I don't think it's any secret nationally that they, you know, they, they have a lot of tradition here, a lot of history, um, but that can weigh on some guys that, you know, that they're, they're some relish the fact that there are 40,000 fans in the uh, stands. Some get, you know, tired of all only hearing about how, yeah, that was a good season, but you didn't win a world series. So how good really was it? Um, You know, the, the expectations can be high. How do you think, He'll um he'll he'll handle that, or do you think that might bring out more in him? I think you will see the best version of Nolan Arenado that maybe we'll see in his entire career, and that's saying a lot because we we've seen some amazing numbers from him over the last couple of years. I say that because in the National League West, obviously the Rockies draw a very good crowd. Um, and if you think back on some of the improbable or the highlight reel moments that Nolan has had, yes, some of those are at Coors Field. In fact, he had a walk-off Grand Slam on Father's Day where he came home and Charlie Blackman basically headbutted him and gave him like mm-hmm. a bloody eye. And there's this iconic picture of Nolan like screaming for the win and like blood running down his face. And it's just this fantastic moment. It's in front of, a, of course, a sold-out crowd at Coors Field. Um, on Father's Day, and it's amazing. But if you look around the National League West, he got up for those games that he'd go to LA a little more because he knew his family was going to be there. He knew that's where he grew up playing. He knew the Dodgers were the best team in the division. If you look historically at his games against the San Francisco Giants over the years, we always called him the Giants killer. And early in his career, you know, they were still winning. They were still going to the World Series. And he made some of the most remarkable plays at AT AT&T Park, which I guess is now Oracle Park, um, that I've ever seen. And so he really seemed to rise to the occasion in interleague play at Boston, at Yankee Stadium. You're talking about walking into Fenway. I'll never forget in 2019, um, the Rockies were there and I happened to get to the park early. I was working on a a feature story and I see this guy in the bullpen at noon for a seven o'clock game that has his, you know, Bose earphones on and he's taking dry hacks in the bullpen. And I'm like, that's, that's Nolan's swing. Like, that's so weird. And I just kind of walked over and like, sure enough, like Nolan is at Fenway Park at noon because he just wants to take it in a little bit more. And this is two years ago. I mean, he's not a rookie. He's not, you know, a couple of years into his career, he's been to Fenway before, but he understands the history of the game. Like I said, he has such a passion for it and he has such a joy for it, but He also, like last year, I really do, and I mentioned this earlier, but I think his numbers had a little bit to do with the fact that there was no extra energy in the ballpark. Like there there were no fans to cheer. These guys are entertainers in addition to Mm -hmm. being amazing athletes. And so I think Nolan is ready for that night in and night out to put on a show for the Cardinals. Do you know if he signed inside the Green Monster? Did you did you get a chance to sign inside the Green Monster? Yeah, I did. I've done a couple of things in there. I think Nolan, I don't know if he did end up going out. I'm assuming he did over time. We were doing a feature with Adam Adovino at the time, who's um mm. a very skilled photographer as his hobby on the side. So we were kind of, you know, doing a whole story on him shooting pictures at Fenway and how amazing they turned out. And we went inside the Green Monster, but um, I'm sure I'm sure that Nolan did, which 
um, which would be pretty cool. I mean, even like I heard a story, I feel like I've heard all these stories from Nolan. I thought I knew most of them, but I heard a story I'd never heard the other day um, in a press conference. And I can't remember if it was, I, I think it was with the local media here in Denver. I couldn't remember if it was ours or, or the press conference he did in St. Louis, but I'm pretty sure it was here. And he was just talking about how much he appreciated the fans and that big moment that I described that he had on Father's Day, the walk-off home run. And he said he was leaving the ballpark and he ended up turning the opposite direction that he would normally go to turn home just so he could drive through downtown and mm -hmm. relish in what the fans were feeling for the excitement of that win that day and watching little kids in his jersey holding their parents' hands. I think that just said a lot about, you know, the moments aren't lost on him, the big moments especially. Like he, um, he'll always say, you'll hear it a lot in his interviews, he'll always say, you know, I thank God for that. I'm, I'm so excited for this moment, but I thank God for that. And I, I think he's genuine in his approach to that. Like he he knows how amazing he is as a player and how he can affect the game. But I also don't think that he lets those moments pass him by. That was the description he gave of going down market street in Denver. Yeah. yeah I, I heard that interview. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Yep. Well, let's, let's not avoid the mountain in the room, so to speak. What is your view having seen so many games there of the offensive aspect of a player leaving Coors field? How, how much does that place elevate stats and how much of a question is that for a player moving on from there yeah I think there's no question about it um when you play at Coors Field like you know you're gonna you're gonna get a little boost in your stats I think historically we've seen that we've even seen it um again just relating back to Larry Walker not getting in the Hall of Fame until his final year because of all the years he spent um in Denver and at Coors Field and pre-humidor uh years at that for some of them um I I think, though, with the great players, if you really look at their splits, if you really look around what ballparks they perform at, I mean, if you pulled any individual player across the league, like there is a ballpark they perform better at and they don't they can't even tell you why it, it might be the mm. backdrop it might be the crowd it might be like historically the type of pitching they face there like there's just some ballpark that they will historically perform better at out on the road um, than others but I think leaving Coors Field will be hard on some level, but I don't think it will change Nolan's numbers. I don't think it will change his game. You know, I, I, even when you look um, at the altitude here, you have to look at the dimensions of Coors Field. Like, mm -hmm. it, it is a huge field. And now all of a sudden you're going to play in a, a lot smaller ballparks. I said that earlier in the NL Central. I mean, um, Great American Small Park, <laughs> for example. Yeah, yeah. In Cincinnati, like those guys' numbers are ridiculous there. Um, because the ball can fly and, and get out because it's a shorter field. So I just don't see Nolan's like attention to detail on the offensive front changing um, because he's leaving Coors Field. And, and I hope he'll get that opportunity to prove it out of the gate. I mean, as a player that just, you know, from a fan's perspective is so enjoyable to watch, um, I hope that A, his numbers in 2020 were definitely a fluke or because of injury, and B, I hope he can prove – um, the Coors Field effect pretty quick because I think that's important for, you know, the landscape of, of good players in general. Paul Goldschmidt said that the thing that no one wants to talk about is the toll that playing a, ho a homestand there takes on the body, um, whether it's then on the next series or even coming back and trying to adjust to that series. He said playing three games there as a visitor was like playing six or seven games elsewhere. How much do you think that is a factor? And do you think baseball's starting to pay more attention to that? I mean, the humidor gets attention, the wide, wide, wide open space of the outfield where singles become doubles gets attention. But do you think there's more there's more awareness now of maybe what the altitude does to a body and how it might be a carryover? I hope so. I think as much as biometrics have become a part of this game, um, biomechanics have become a part of this game on the hitting front, on the pitching front. Um, it has to be looked at, too, by environment and atmosphere. And um, we're just in 2021. So, I mean, the science, like, it needs to be uh, spoken some more truth into. And I think for a long time, the national perspective of, you know, baseball at altitude, baseball in Denver, um, baseball a mile high is the fact that you have this huge advantage. Um, yeah, the ball will fly more a little bit here. Yes, it is harder for pitchers. 
but can it be done? Absolutely. Like we, we've seen pitchers like Kyle Freeland and Herman Marquez be able to kind of master some of those myths about, um, you know, pitching at mm. Coors Field. But to your point and to what Paul Goldschmidt was saying, it is 100% true. And in baseball, more than any other sport, it hurts the athletes when this is your home ballpark, because in football, you take a trip, you're gone less than 24 hours, you're back. Um, in hockey, maybe you're on the road a little longer as well, and they might feel some of those effects. But same with basketball. But in baseball, like when you leave and you're gone on a three-city road trip for nine or ten days, and then you come back to Coors Field and you come back to the altitude after being at sea level, especially with the division and the majority of teams being in California on the West Coast, like the struggle in the first 24, 48 hours to get your body reacclimated to altitude, it's tough. I mean, you know, we travel with the team being their TV partner and there are days like getting in, um, you know, after a Sunday getaway on the road and getting in at 2 a.m., like I, I have a really hard time waking up the next day. I have a hard time moving. I have a hard time working out. And it's not just catching your breath. It's just like your body is fatigued. Um, and there's a science to it with what your blood does, obviously, at altitude and, and how it thins out and how it affects the performance of your body. So again, like with nutritionists in the clubhouse and things like that, they've found a way um, to eat certain foods or, you know, drink beet juice, I've heard is one of the big things at altitude to, for recovery. Um, all these little nuggets to, to try and equal out that playing field. But I would agree with that. I, I think sometimes there is a big hindrance on these players um, for having this be their home ballpark when it comes to the travel portion of the season and have to, having to get reacclimated to it, having it take a couple of days. And then all of a sudden, if it's a short homestand, you're back on the road and having to figure out again um, how, how to change things. For Charlie Blackman, he really talked a lot about um, – at the at the pitching level like he started bringing this pitching machine the last couple of years on the road mm. and changing it because the ball moves very different at Coors Field than it does on the road and so having to simulate that so that when you're taking your reps when you're getting batting practice you don't feel so far behind and it did feel like that in years past with some of these Rockies offensive teams when they'd go out on the road there was a lag in offense for maybe the first game or two before they could kind of catch up. And then all of a sudden, once you're back in Denver, you're now getting your body to catch back up. So it's always like kind of playing a game with yourself, whether it's mentally or physically. You've kind of referenced a couple different aspects of Coors Field. One, it, it is a beautiful ballpark. It's got um, sort of a see and be seen aspect to it where it can be a great place to go on a Friday night, not always because of the ball game, but because of the view, because of the venue, because of the, the new right field kind of bar area. Um, it, it, it's a social gathering place there in Lodo in Denver. And then of course there's the aspect of playing there. It, is it, what are, what are the ramifications of this trade for the fan base? Will, will Coors Field just be continue to be the draw and the Rockies get by, or is this going to be a little bit more damaging to them than, than anything before? You know, I think it's such an interesting point because, um, you know, I grew up here in Denver, Colorado, and um, I was in middle school when the Rockies came. And initially they played at Mile High where the Broncos played. 80,000 fans came to opening day. It'll set. In a I was one of them. I've heard you actually have like the pennant, right? I have the oh, I have the pennant actually like within reach. I can see it here. Like I, I was there. I also have the T-shirt that said that Drew Litton drew. Yes. It said I'm a major league record holder. Yes, I love that. I forgot that you were there. Yes, of course you were there. I should have been there, but uh, <laughs> my brother got to go. That's a whole different story that like needs a therapy couch, so I won't get into it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you remember those days. You remember the hunger for baseball and the hunger um, to have that team here. And it's it started out just like this very grassroots thing in a way where like all these people were flocking. I mean, Denver's a great sports town anyways, and we've always had the Broncos, mm. but we've seen it when the avalanche came um, into existence from the NHL and how quickly the Pepsi center was packed and how quickly they won a Stanley cup and how exciting it can be to be involved with a sports team here. I think you're right. When Coors Field opened as it developed, like Coors Field's really um, to be credited for the development of downtown Denver and how cool and hip it's become um, all these years later, because you start to look at the bars and restaurants that were built specifically around Coors Field that make up lower downtown Lodo and um, kind of the atmosphere and the party scene and, you know, all those things that come with it. And then, yeah, Coors Field became this, this great place to go. So I think that 
as the years have gone on, we, we've heard from fans as social media has become more involved in the, in the fan base. You start to hear these whispers after Troy Tulowitzki got traded in 2015 that like, that's it. We're done with the product. We're never coming back. And yet, like, you know, <laughs> on record for the last five years before the pandemic, um, they had really good attendance record numbers. So maybe those people weren't as large as their voice seemed to appear online. Um, but they still came back. And even through some of those losing years, the fans were still there. I don't know, because we're hearing that loud voice again coming out that's saying, um, I'm I'm a Cardinals fan now. I'm going with Nolan or um, saying, you know, I'm done with this product. I'm never going back. But I, I really, timing-wise, again, we've just been in a pandemic. We haven't been able to go anywhere as a society nationwide. Um, are you telling me you're really not going to go see a baseball game if fans are allowed this summer on a beautiful 80 degree night, um, to enjoy being outside of, you know, the four walls of your house? I don't know. Um, I think all that's kind of to be determined, but I I definitely think the fans are are loud and clear right now. The way you describe, like, just like, the, the event that baseball began, but also how much it means that I, I can completely empathize because I remember growing up um, a little bit older. I was in high school, actually leaving high school when they came there in 93. Um, so it was like all of my childhood just yearning for Major League Baseball to come in. Um, and then they did. And there was such adoration for the team. But now they've been there. They don't have a division title. They do have an NL pennant. Um, but I wonder you know, what does a move like this, or maybe what does the direction they're going in say about whether or not it's possible to have a winner in Colorado? Is is the altitude always going to, um, excuse the pun, keep them down as far as a contender goes? Well, it's interesting you say that because you started again, and I hate to keep bringing up pre-pandemic, but you start to look at the trend of where the Rockies were headed. Some of their worst years, 2012, 2013, I think for a mid-market team, their payroll was right around $75 million. Well, all of a sudden, they've doubled that. By the time 2019 came around, and a big majority of that was Nolan Arenado's contract, they were up in the 145 to 150 range when all was said and done. Well, now without Nolan Arenado going into this 2021 season, it looks like for a 26-man roster, they're going to be back at 95 million. So you you start mm-hmm. to see like all of a sudden this trend of they were spending, they were spending. The talent was here. The homegrown talent was here. Yes, Jeff Breidich went out and made some free agent moves that didn't pan out, but they were spending money to do it and to try it out. Um, And all of a sudden, it feels like a huge step back when you, from the outside looking in, lose your best player, one of the best players in all of the game, Um, in addition to now, like, who is on your roster? You know, for the average fan, like, can you name a couple of Rockies that aren't Charlie Blackman or Trevor Story. And so I think from a fan's perspective, like I see that frustration, you know, um, from an owner's perspective, I see the effects of this pandemic and what it's had on people. And I don't know the recovery of that. Will it be by the 2022 season or will it take a couple of years to get back to a point? I think there's a whole nother element working in this, Derek, and you have to look mm-hmm. at the vision. Like the National League West is clearly dominated by one of the largest payrolls in all of baseball and the current World Series champs. And you're talking about the Los Angeles Dodgers who just went out and got even better with Trevor Bauer. You look at the Padres who were so close to nipping at their heels this last season in a shortened season. They went out and they got better, right? So as all these teams that you've kind of been able to compete with on some level within the last four or five years, um, you know, taking the Dodgers to game 163 in 2018, all of a sudden now, what does that mean when everyone's spending more money, going out and getting better, having bigger names and better stars, and you're going the opposite direction? I mean, it's pretty clear from a payroll perspective, and again, after losing Nolan, where they sit right now. Does that mean that they're not going to be able to compete? No, definitely not. I think any given year, you know, a combination of, of guys pitching, especially if it's if it's doing well in Colorado, like you do have a chance to win. But I just think on paper, the division of the NL West is so strong and the moves aren't there. You didn't make the moves. In fact, you gave away one of the biggest pieces to the puzzle. Um, it's going to be very hard to compete for the foreseeable future. You see a lot of baseball games there. And, and this conversation for me goes back to, like you said, Mile High Stadium and and honestly watching the Zephyrs as a kid yeah. with, you know, the 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 heroic 
Paul Bunyan type figure that Joey Meyer was and, you know, the early days of Charlie O'Brien with the elongated O that I won't subject listeners to as he came up or George Canale or um, Brad Cummings, Billy, I could go on and on, but Skeeter Barnes, um, personal favorite, but, you know, and Gary Sheffield, who was like a phenom for a stretch there, a brief stretch. Um, but, you know, the conversation then, and then it obviously melded into a conversation about Major League Baseball. And and I'd be really interested in get your opinion because you've seen so many games there. How do you win there? The, the Cardinals have an identity, however you want to describe it, whether you go back to the Gas House Gang, you go to the Swifties, you look at the most recent teams here. They, they've been a run prevention, fundamentals, big, strong defensive team that Nolan Arenado fits right into, to be candid. Mm-hmm. Um, but what identity will win there for the Rockies? Do, the Rockies have kind of gone through a bunch of different identities, trying to find one that works, and it hasn't. So what kind of baseball would win there? Yeah, I think it's a great question because obviously if you look back at 95 when they went to the playoffs for the first time, it was the big boppers, right? It was Mm -hmm. the Blake Street Bombers. It was altitude baseball. It was like, give us any pitch and we're going to knock it over the fence. And every night it was fireworks. Like they averaged a couple home runs a night, you know, that was just the brand of baseball that they had. Come 07, it was the fighters. We saw a team that had no business in being in the playoffs by their you know, record and how they were ending. And all of a sudden, they won 21 of 22 games, including some of the postseason, to get all the way to the World Series, only to get blown out by the Boston Red Sox, right? 09, a fantastic team under Todd Helton. You're talking about these stars you're building around. But I think if you enter the 2010s, the biggest demise of the Rockies or their biggest success years have always centered around pitching. And I know that sounds so bizarre, again, coming from altitude, coming from Coors Field, but they really took those early 2010 years. I mentioned the awful 2012 that there was. They instituted a piggyback where they wouldn't let a starter go more Mm -hmm. than 75 pitches and they bring in this long reliever. And it became kind of just this like what is happening to all of a sudden really, you know, changing the GM, changing the manager, changing the pitching um, coordinators and pitching staff to, to creating this philosophy of mental toughness and inserting biomechanics and saying, how can you pitch altitude? How can you make that happen? How can you wash away this stigma? And now you're starting to see the fruits of some of those labors. And I mentioned it in your solid core with Herman Marquez, who's on a long-term deal with the Rockies, even though not homegrown, he was traded over from the Tampa Bay Rays. But Kyle Freeland, who was born and raised in Denver, Colorado, and has always had a chip on his shoulder about pitching an altitude, <laughs> to now you know becoming a, a finalist for a Cy Young candidate within his first couple of years of Major League Baseball. He also had a really terrible year two years ago and had to bounce back. We've seen John Gray, who had all this potential potential to be an ace in this league, have these up and down seasons. It's about consistent pitching and making that philosophy work. And you need to have three or four starters that are consistent, that are solid. Because again, minus last season, which was such a bizarre year offensively for a Coors field-driven team, you will have offensive numbers, even without a Nolan Arenado here, um, even with some younger players that are going to have to step up this season, their offense will come for the Rockies. It's about pitching. It's about that style. It's about um, wanting to brand behind that to win games. And so I think to your question, like they've poured a lot of resources into making that core develop. It's now about like, is it developed? You know, that's the question Mm -hmm. on the other end. And how do you then build around that? But um, so many factors when your payroll like just skyrocketed a couple years ago and all of a sudden is now going in the opposite direction. Do you you think they've, they've gone a little bit awry by paying for offense when they could just count on offense developing there or maybe like pay for guys who need bounce back years and they can maybe get bigger production offensively and that they need to like you like you said that that's the way to outfit a core pitching that where what you do is you find the guys who maybe are suppressed offensively at Petco Park or AT&T Park or any of these like hitter quiet parks pitcher friendly parks and then allow them to maximize their value by playing a little bit at Coors 
Yeah, and I think we've seen that with some roster construction in years past, you know, when mm. Nolan either, you know, right before arbitration years or it, that's what's funny when you look at Nolan's career is like there were some years that he was the best of the best and still getting paid minimum salary, right? Or yeah. his year of arbitration um, or, you know, Trevor's story. You start to look around these young grown players within their system like homegrown offensive guys and then like you mentioned building around them I mean for a couple of years um you know the team brought in Nick Hunley who for all those years at Petco Park um was a was a great catcher in terms of dealing with pitchers offensively powers there but not on a consistent level we saw Daniel Descalso spend a little time Mm -hmm. in his uniform Chris Owings right now he was on the team last year he's coming back this year on a minor league deal Matt Kemp um if you want to talk about players that you know were kind of on their way out and all of a sudden back in the game um they they have gone after some of those types um not as core pieces but maybe just to kind of you know um accentuate or to to be a side note to some of this young grown talent but eventually that core of really good young grown talent that you didn't have to pay for um is all coming up at the same time and you had to pay for them and now we're seeing that maybe that's not the strategy maybe that won't work Mm. maybe that deal they thought um, again, even in a non-pandemic time, that deal they thought they could give Nolan, maybe it wouldn't have sustained for the entire eight years just because then you probably couldn't have kept Trevor or had the opportunity to keep him um, right next to Nolan and keep that core group that went to the postseason in 17 and 18. Um, so yeah, now it's about finding your identity. And I think that's the biggest thing that maybe fans are yearning to know with some of these moves from the front office is what is that identity, you know, yeah. move forward. You, you had it around Troy Tulitsky and then you gave him up, you had it around Nolan Arnato and then you gave him up. So, so just what is that philosophy? And I think um, maybe fans don't feel like they've had that communicated to them and um, we'll, we'll have to find out moving forward what that's going to be. As, as someone like me, a fan of baseball, um, who obviously knows that the pandemic has been heavily influential in everything, the revenues being um, less because they weren't able to sell tickets, revenues being less because some of the rights deals weren't paid because there weren't games on television, all of those things. But also on the horizon is the labor question. Does yeah. that does that give you chills a little bit when you yeah. see a team willing to pay $50 million for its best player to go elsewhere? I mean, there's no other business where you know you could get away with that i mean or where you'd get a thumbs up from your owner for saying here's our best most talented individual let's pay him a lot of money to go play elsewhere um does that should that send shivers i i think at face value it does i mean i think it's very scary to look and say not only did you give up the best player you didn't get any top prospects in return you got one pitcher who has major league experience time, and as I've heard you talk a lot about, um, was going to compete for the Cardinals rotation this year. Maybe that's a win. I don't think you can tell the win of this deal for several years to come. I mean, I think just now we're able to dissect what the Troy Tulowitzki deal meant back in 2015. Right. All those pieces that came back either didn't pan out, ended up as trade pieces, um, or, you know, they ended up saving a lot of money with Troy who ended up being injury prone late in his career. And we saw that play out in Toronto. So you're able to kind of assess that four or five years down the road, who knows with the Nolan deal on that front. And I think again, at face value fans just see you gave up our best player. You gave them money to give up our best player and you got nothing in return. Like that's how fans see the deal. And it's very easy to see it that way. I think from a front office perspective, what, they're trying to communicate is they felt like because Nolan um, was already disgruntled a bit with the team and their positioning that he probably was going to use his opt out after this 2021 Mm. season. And they felt that rather than pay him the $35 million this year, only to get one draft pick in return for losing a player of that caliber, they felt they could get five, quote unquote draft picks, right? Who are more major mm-hmm. league ready than a raw draft talent would be. But again, are those five worth fifty million dollars? I mean, that's just a question like I'm not good at math, but it doesn't seem to add up um in time. But apparently there was a reason to do it and 
Um, I don't know all the ins and outs of the deal, how much of that money goes up front, how much of that money is deferred over time. Again, them being able to save on Nolan and that big AAV of $35 million a year, how does that open up for the future? Probably not in 2021, maybe not even in 2022, or maybe it does with Trevor's story and being able to ink him do a longer deal um, once he becomes a free agent or even before he becomes a free agent. Um, or maybe being able to go out and get some of those missing pieces that they need on the pitching front, if that's the identity they're trying to build around. So I think there's just way too many questions to really understand why this deal happened. And I understand the scrutiny of it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think from a national perspective, I mean, you've, you've read it all. We were all in the same press conference. You heard all the same questions being asked. Um, and those are going to be questions that are going to have to be answered, I think, for a very long time. Last thing that I want to ask you is one of the first things that Arenado said when he was talking to us. I asked him about the opt-outs because, you know, among the many moving parts to this deal to make it possible for the Cardinals was, you know, reducing that AAV. They did not want to take on that $30 million contract, sure. but they also then had to keep the present day value of the contract. And to do that, opt-outs have value. So to make it all work, and also because of the timing, like we discussed, coming out of a pandemic, going in towards the expiration of the CBA, that second opt-out comes into play. So he has opt-outs after 2021 and after 2022. And I asked him what criteria he would consider when coming to that fork in the road, when coming to those decisions. What would he look for? And he volunteered that he intends to stay here a while in St. Louis. He then added, of course, I've said that before in Colorado. And then he went and said, but I don't expect that to happen here. What do you, what do you think the chances are that he stays here? Do you think that, that the, this is a place where he could call home for a long time, knowing him like you do, having him see, you know, seeing what he's been searching for? And, and also having been there that day when he thought he had a career-long contract with Colorado that nine months later didn't look that rosy. You know, I think to your point, he did say that that day in Colorado. And I I really tried to express to fans who were concerned about that opt-out after three years into an eight-year deal in general. I said, this is the best of both sides because I think for Nolan to really commit long-term to a team before testing free agency, which think about that. I mean, how, how much did he luck out knowing that free agency was going into last year? Well, I guess the pandemic didn't hit until the spring, but um, just the idea that, you know, he did get to have his payday. He did get to sign this big mm -hmm. deal, but he wouldn't have made that commitment had he not felt, again, as I described to you, his passion to win. Had he right. not felt the Rockies were on the right path and the right trajectory to get to the postseason consistently and really have a legitimate shot to try and beat the Dodgers, to try and win the division, to try and eventually win a World Series or be back in a position to win a World Series, he would not have signed that piece of paper. I think the checks and balances to that contract came with the three-year opt-out. It came from the Rockies saying, we'll have this three-year window with you to prove that that's the direction we're heading in. And if you don't like it, you can opt out for free agency. Well. All of a sudden, a lot of things shifted and changed very quickly within the first year of his contract in 2019 when the team underperformed unbelievably. And then again, he says he felt disrespected by the organization because they underperformed and the organization did nothing in the offseason to his mindset of going out to make them better and get them back to that point. That's where the discourse all started. So I believe Nolan, when he says it for a second time in St. Louis, because he's clearly had those conversations. And again, he had a no trade clause, so he didn't have to accept this trade if he didn't mm -hmm. believe that St. Louis was also on the right path and moving in a direction to win their division and be in the postseason consistently. And obviously knowing the history of that team, um, knowing the fan base, knowing the, the group and what they bring to Major League Baseball, I think he's excited to be part of that year in and year out. And um, I do think like the two opt-outs feel very strange and very weird. But at the same time, as, as you brought up with the pandemic, like I don't think you want to test free agency after right. next year when you have such an amazing deal, unless if it was a dream scenario for you. But I think when Nolan made that commitment, He's making it as a handshake commitment on both sides. Like I'm committing to you 
and giving you all my talent because I want to win. And you're committing to me that we're going to win. And it sounds like that's the marriage they're going to have in St. Louis. I really like the way you put it. Yeah. It's a two-way street. Then that's how it's ought to be. You know, that's what, what opt-outs are a shield, not a sword. Isn't that the phrase that right. uh, one of the agents who came up with them does? You know, maybe I think, I think I like the way you put it better that opt-outs are a handshake, not a, not a talk to the palm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jenny. Uh, what did you what, did you get to one of the early Rockies game as a kid? Yeah. I know that you said your brother got the uh, we we had to enter a lottery, so people know, I, I I this is how it was for me. We had to enter a lottery that you then had to win, and you got an alert from the Rockies how many of the games that you entered the lottery for you won. So the more games in that first seven game homestand, I think it was, the better chance you had of winning tickets to them, but you might not win opening day. You might win the Sunday opener. You might win armed forces opener. You might win the kids opener. You might win the first night game, right. um, but you had to send in the money. Did, uh, did I, uh, I got to five of them. That's amazing. I, in all honesty, I'm not sure I stepped in mile high for a Rockies game, obviously went for a Broncos game when I was a kid, which in and of itself was a special experience. Sure. We had family season tickets and two of them. And so it's like, I was very low on the totem pole of getting the ask to go. So I remember very specifically which Broncos games I went to, but my dad was a longtime high school baseball coach in Colorado. And I think he had been gifted the tickets. And so it was really supposed to be my dad taking one of us to the game. And he had to teach that day. And my mom was able to take off work and they chose to take my brother. So really the two Mm. people in our family whose careers are in sports, my dad, the coach, and then what I ended up doing weren't even there, which is such a disappointment, but I will say they made it up to us. And, um, as time went on and the Rockies moved into Coors field, we had, um, a split season ticket package, I think with eight, eight people. So we got 10 games a year and just those nights being able to go, we set about 17 rows up from first base. So Andre Scalaraga early on, and then Todd Helton, uh, was a pretty good seat in the house to have. The, uh, the, the, when the Rockies opened Coors field, a quick, quick story that I'll bore people with, but it's, it's fun. They, they had a soft opener against the Yankees Yeah, and um, it was coming back from the strike. So this is 95. So it's just coming back from the strike. I got a phone call um, from my, my friend who became a best man in my wedding. And he goes, Hey, I got tickets to this Yankees Rockies game at the new ballpark. Can you make it? And I said, I will find a way. Um, this was the two days before, maybe the day before the game, there was one catch. Um, I was at Mizzou. And the game was in Denver. So I drove to Kansas City, bought a plane ticket at the gate, and flew to go to the game, then flew back, or the plan was to fly back the next morning, first flight, and get back to his class in time for a test. I missed that first flight out of Denver the next morning um, and had to explain <laughs> why I had made this crazy run to go see the soft opener at Coors Field um, just because a friend called and said he had an extra ticket. It was it was incredible. Well, you um, couldn't be one of the you know record holders at Mile High and not step into Coors Field for the first time, right? Yeah. Right, or see the Yankees like in exactly. the time zone baseball forgot. I mean, they hadn't they'd not been there. I that mean, that, that was part of it. One, right. To see the pinstripes in the, in the Rocky mountain region. <laughs> it, that's what it was. I was like, I gotta be there. Well, and also I wanted to see the ballpark, the new ballpark and everything. So <laughs> it was great. Um, I, 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 what I, should just close it up, but what should I know? Where did where'd your dad coach? He coached at Smoky Hill for, okay. uh, oh gosh, I don't know, 30 some years. And then he finished wow. Regis Jesuit. Oh, nice. Okay. I, that, yeah. So did he, does he know Mosaic as a coach? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He does. There you wow. go. I know. Cardinal president of baseball operations, John Mozalek, the baseball, the high school baseball coach from Colorado. Isn't that so funny how that works? Yeah. Yeah. And Walt Weiss was one of his assistant coaches. (laughs) Oh, really? A Regis. Wow. Yeah. And then Walt took over when my dad retired and obviously ended up being a major league manager and now a pretty good bench coach for, for the Atlanta Braves. So. That's right. Fantastic. Well, Jenny, this has been a pleasure talking with you and um, I could, could could probably swap stories about baseball in the front range for a long time. So thank you so much for joining me. Um, we have become the 
Arenado Daily at the Post Dispatch, essentially. So you can find all that covered at stltoday.com and in the pages of the Post Dispatch. You can also find the best podcast in baseball anywhere you get your podcast. Jenny, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Jenny Kavnar or on Instagram at Jenny Kavnar. And just a quick PSA for Cardinals fans who love baseball so much. I know you won't take him for granted, but do not take for granted watching Nolan Arenado live at the ballpark. It, um, as, as a baseball fan, it's been some of the best eight years of my life being able to witness um, who I think will definitely be a future Hall of Famer. That's Jenny Kavnar, Rockies pre- and post-game host for AT&T Sportsnet. This has been the best podcast in baseball, brought to you by Closet by Design of St. Louis. Update your closets, garage, office, pantry, and more. Call 1-800-BY-DESIGN. That's 1-800-BYDESIGN. The official sponsor of the best podcast in baseball. Thank you to all the listeners for your patience because I had to, um, well, I had to drop a whole episode of the BPIB because it really didn't seem relevant after they started making the trade for Arenado. So we'll catch back up. Jenny, this has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Um, I look forward to hopefully seeing you in person at Coors Field this year. This is the longest I've gone um, in my life since I moved to Colorado without going to Colorado. So I'm really eager to uh, to get there to see Coors Field and uh, to, to hopefully we'll be in the dugout and be able to uh, see how well Nolan Arenado can field questions, let alone ground balls. There you go. I love it. That sounds like a great plan. 